Uh, good afternoon. It's almost evening. Um, you'll be lucky to know after this session everybody can drink heavily. <laughs> Perhaps you've been drinking heavily throughout the day. Uh, but you probably need a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of something in your system to discuss the final topic today, which is what's wrong with politics. Uh, clearly that's been something that has been addressed directly and indirectly throughout all sessions, but we're going to really focus on, in on it for the last session. Uh, so some of the things we're going to talk about, why don't we trust governments, what do we need uh, to change our politicians, our political system, is democracy working? Um, you know the format about what's going to happen, so I won't bore you with that, but I will remind people to keep their phones on silent and please continue to tweet. The tweets have been so interesting. Um, hashtag ideas for Oz. Uh, and lots of opportunities for questions at the end. Now, let me briefly introduce our uh, three guests this afternoon. The first is Tony Windsor. He is a former Australian... Everybody, yes, absolutely. <laughs> You're popular here, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> That's my mother up there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you're out of politics. <laughs> Tony is a former Australian politician and served as an independent member for the Australian House of Representatives from 2001 to 2013, representing the electorate of New England, one of the several MPs who made Julia Gillard Prime Minister uh, from 2010 to 2013. He retired in 2013 and has written a wonderful book which you can buy and sign after this session. Welcome, Tony. Uh, and seeing as to Tony is Anne Sherry. She's been the CEO at Westpac New Zealand and the Bank of Melbourne and the first Assistant Secretary of the Office of the Status of Women in Canberra. So lots of insights into what it's like to work for politicians. Uh, she's currently CEO of Carnival Australia. And welcome, Anne. Anne deserves a... And finally, Benjamin Law. He's a Sydney-based journalist, columnist and screenwriter. And he's completed a PhD in television writing and cultural studies. And he has written more than one book. And they're all on sale outside and you can <laughs> sign them as well. And you feel you should write a book too. Don't leave. <laughs> too busy. You can just drink while they, while, while they uh, sign books. Uh, welcome, Ben. I'm going to ask Tony to tell us what's wrong with... Po oh, the fact that you're not in politics anymore. What's wrong with politics? Well, I think there's a number of things wrong with politics, but it's not all uh, wrong. There, there are some very good parts to the democratic process, and I wouldn't like uh, to be involved. I'm not suggesting what you're doing here today is doing this either, but I wouldn't like to be involved in a process where I'm actually denigrating the democratic processes. There's a lot of things that can be done... Uh, that should be done, in, in my view. And they're not all about the way in which the political class addresses their work. Quite a lot of it has to do with the constituency itself. Uh, the constituency really has to have a look at the longer-term issues that need to be addressed. And I think one of the problems we've faced, uh, probably over the last 15 to 20 years, at the federal level, at least, is a scenario where the two major groups uh, have essentially morphed into, a, into very similar organisations. So we don't have political parties, the major political parties, I mean, that are, that are based on philosophy anymore, the worker and, and the boss. 
What we do have, in my view, is two management teams and they're vying for power. So the grasp on power is the important thing in terms of their political lives. The constituency tends to be left out of that. So you've got, the, I call, call it the bastard class in a sense, that you've got, this, other people call it the political class, but <laughs> the, you have this group of people, some within politics, many outside in terms of the donors and uh, organisers, who construct this scenario that they put out to the constituency uh, from time to time to compete against this other power group. I believe, and you add a couple of scenarios to that in, uh, as well, where you've got, particularly in today's society, social media, so it's very easy to become aggravated against you know, an, uh, an, an, an initiative of government or a policy of opposition. You add to that <clears throat> some of the 24-7 cycle in terms of the mainstream media. You add a, a dash of apathy uh, to that and uh, a large slice of greed uh, within the general public. And you end up with a scenario that's very short term in outlook. And we've been asked today to produce our big idea uh, to actually overcome some of these issues in, uh, in politics today. My big idea isn't about uh, abolishing the states or uh, you know, some becoming a republic. I don't think either of those things, even though I would abolish the states, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think either of those things will change the, the attitude that people have to the political system. The idea is that we all have to start to think long term. And that comes from the people rather than the political leaders. When I was growing up, I always thought, oh, no, I'm 64 now, so Everald, I'll retire and <laughs> at the end of the year. Um, when I was growing up, I always thought South Africa would be apartheid. I always thought there'd be a wall through Berlin and for some reason, I thought Russia would always be communist. Now, all of those things have changed. They haven't changed because of leadership at the political level. Uh, they changed because there was leadership at the people level. And I think whether it be climate change or the, you know, the broadband issue or um, overseas aid or aged care and how we take care of those particular policy issues into the future, I think all of us and the political system has to start and think long term. What John Howard did, and he did many good things, but during the middle part of the minerals boom, when he went out after the Howard battlers, as they were called, there was this promise that the large S would be available, as Joe Hockey calls it, the age of entitlement process, uh, this large S would be ongoing forever. There were certain things that were done and Kevin Rudd agreed to them at the 2007 election period that should never have been done in terms of the giving back to the broader community, the tax cuts and a few other things. But, so I think the big idea that I have is a fairly simple one. We have to start to think long term about what sorts of legacies we're leaving to our young people and very importantly, the legacy that we're leaving the globe in, 
in terms of emissions and uh, uh, the consequences of, of climate change and global warming. So there's some very important areas that I think if all of those ingredients, the constituents, the political system, uh, the media, and very importantly, social media, if, if people start to campaign for those changes, over time you will see them happening. So I, in a sense, I'm very positive in terms of the future. But, uh, but if you sit round and wait for the, for the political classes to deliver, their, their view of long term is three and four years out. That is not good enough in terms of uh, uh, the constituency. I've always had a saying, uh, and I use it when talking to school children, or I did when I was a Member of Parliament, was that the world is run by those who turn up. If you don't turn up, and the great problem that we have now with about 40% of the constituency thinking democracy is not a good idea, if you don't turn up and be involved in it, we will be in a worse situation uh, than being cynical about the political process. So it is about all of us as individuals and, uh, and then the collective. Tony, I have two questions for you, and the first is it's just between you and me. But I just want to know, we know what the electorate think of politicians. What do politicians say about the electorate behind... I mean, they always say nice <laughs> things. Oh, you know, the electorate's always right. But what do they say behind closed doors about... So, for example, you, you, off the record, sometimes some Labor politicians will call their voters bogans. Those dumb bogans in the western suburbs, we've got to get them to vote for us by beating up on asylum seekers, for example. But I mean, yeah. I'm just interested in, in how politicians off camera talk about the voters. Well, as an independent, I sort of didn't mix in that circle oh. too much. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so easy out. If you're not in politics because of the people you're there to represent, you shouldn't be in it. And uh, you do get that sort of reaction where you've got to convince uh, Joe Bloggs who's got no interest in politics uh, to vote for me. Um, and you do get some derogatory comments. I wouldn't like to get into some of the personalities, but I think it's from all sides. But it is a minority. I think most people go into politics for good reasons. And unfortunately, particularly within the party mechanisms, to aspire to get there, you have to uh, bow down to the executive of government and the outsiders in terms of the political uh, machinery. So it waters down the capacity of the member to represent his constituency. And one of the, the least powerful people, in a sense, in terms of the electorate they represent are the ministers because the ministers are there, the reverse is supposed to be the case, but it's not. The ministers are there at the behest of the Prime Minister. One of the very interesting things about the hung parliament was that the executive of government didn't have control. And it gave the committee processes of the House of Representatives the capacity to actually deal with issues as real issues, rather than what happens in a in a normal parliament where one side has a majority, that majority is reflected in the makeup of the committee. In a hung parliament, it's not. And issues like the Murray-Darling process that had taken 100 years of um, debate with majority parliaments was achieved where the executive had no power in either house. And so I think there's some 
things that we have to think about in terms of the empowering of members of parliament, irrespective of which party they come from, uh, in terms of the processes that they have to deal with within the parliament itself. And I'd argue, as part of that thinking long-term business I talked about a moment ago, is that the, one of the practical things that could happen in the parliament is a, a release of the tension within the House of Reps and the way the committees actually do their work. Release of the tension, what do you mean by that? Well, normally in a majority parliament, a committee might be dealing with a particular issue. If the Murray-Darling had been in a, in a uh, majority parliament, it would never have been resolved because the politics is in the division, not in the consensual Defensive. approach uh, to fixing the problem. Once you remove the executive from having total control down through the system, you actually empower those at the bottom of the system, in a sense, the, the, the members from all sides. And there were a lot of the committees where we saw that actually happening in a hung parliament. You would never have seen the Royal Commission into child abuse if Abbott or Rudd had been Prime Minister or anybody had, had, been, had a majority in that parliament. I want to move to Anne Sherry now. She's in a unique position, having worked at the high levels of bureaucracy and worked very closely with politicians but also having been in corporate Australia for a long time and been a decision maker in that area. So I want to move to you, Anne. Okay. Your big idea. Um, look, to some extent, I actually agree with Tony. I, I started with a proposition when I was thinking about what's wrong with politics. In a sense, we're wrong with politics because it's meant to represent us and we turn out once every three, four years and sort of reluctantly vote. I voted online actually in the state election this time so you don't even have to turn out anymore. Just turn, turn on your computer and bling and it's done without actually engaging, because it's, be, uh, it's meant to be about engaging two-way, and I think we've lost the art of that. You know, maybe we should a hashtag reform democracy and actually get a bit more involved in that, start a campaign around that, rather than moaning about it and then just turning up and voting in the same people again, or some variation on the theme. But then I, I sort of, was sort of pulling it back, thinking, you know, what, how would you do it differently? If I was running... Um, politics Proprietary Limited. Now, you've been rude about managerialism, so let me actually just... Um, <laughs> it's managed on both sides. In fact, I don't think it's particularly well... If it was well managed, we probably wouldn't be having the conversation. And so I, I went through this thing about if it was called Politics Proprietary Limited, you'd have to have a long-term view. You'd be clear about purpose. You'd be clear about your branding. You'd be thinking about how do you do that for the contemporary time which, and I think one of our issues is that we've actually got a system that was designed a long time ago and, in fact, has barely changed, and I'll come back to that. Um, we'd be required by law, if we were running Politics Proprietary Limited, to improve the number of senior women in our management, <laughs> e.g. Cabinet. <laughs> you know, excusing one woman as she was the only one I could find actually doesn't wash if you're running any other sort of company. Um, board governance rules. You'd be required that people serve no more than 10 years. And if they're particularly useless, you'd move them on more quickly. <laughs> and every time I fill out a Senate ballot paper, I think, who are all those people? I haven't heard of them from one election to the next, and yet we, you know, you routinely go through. We'd be developing diversity plans to ensure our hiring practices reflect the 21st century. We'd be looking for women. We'd be looking for ethnic diversity. We'd be looking to feel more like Australia of the 21st century rather than Australia of the 1950s. 
Um, the way we behave at work would be discussed. No bullying, no <coughs> harassment. You know, all those things would be illegal, not part of the blood sport called question time. Uh, we'd have performance management. There'd be outcomes required of people. So, um, you know, as you think about what actually is happening, and I'll read you something that was... I actually didn't write this, although I was for a moment thinking I might claim it. Um, <laughs> that, uh, so the electoral... The, it says, the electoral mechanism is a wreck. The idiom is bankrupt. And the people who do it, well, let's just agree they're odd. Too many men... Becoming an MP seems a lifestyle choice. That's why they won't quit long after they've ceased to have anything useful to say. Public life is the preserve of a group called Homo Politicus. To get into the political career, you need to strike an attitude at age 19 and never deviate. So it becomes a sort of form of arrested development. <laughs> uh, consider for the moment the way Parliament works, the honourable members, the self-importance, the braying, the arcane language and procedures. Now, this actually was written about Westminster. Oh. So I picked this up in a British paper a week or so ago. They're <laughs> in the midst of their election. Of course, our system is called the Westminster system. And this is a debate in the UK about the fact that people don't want to vote because they don't have compulsory voting. So the way people are expressing their frustration in politics there is they just don't vote. In fact, there's a huge campaign to tell people not to vote. So we actually sit in, um, and in fact, I think there was a famous Russell Brand interview, if you haven't seen it, that said, the ballot paper needs a box that says, none of the above. <laughs> now, if we had in our compulsory voting system a box that said, none of the above, there might actually be a whole different conversation about, <laughs> A, the quality of our elected representatives, B, whether they really are doing what they're doing, and C, whether we're happy with the pre-selection procedures that is a bit like a religious order. A group of people you don't know meet in a room you've never been in and talk <laughs> among themselves and decide who's going to be the next elected representative. And that is turning out people who look like the last elected representative mm. and the one before that and the one before that, which I think is not serving us collectively well either. And quite frankly, for most of us, means you look at it and go, well, I don't fit there. That's not my space. So you get an increasingly narrow group of people turning up for pre-selections. Um, so I guess back to my original proposition, which in fact is not much different to the point Tony was making, is I think we've collectively got to, got to have a voice in this. We are the electorate. There is compulsory voting in Australia. Every single one of us has a legal obligation to express a view, whether it's once every three years or two years or four years, it doesn't matter but we're not engaged in the discourse between elections, other than to say we don't like the policy or we don't like the politics or we don't like that person. And I think there's more to be said by all of us, otherwise we won't get any change. It's quite a well-entrenched system. There's a lot of privilege that sits with it. Uh, there's a lot of protection that goes on with the current systems. I mean, uh, we were talking in the earlier session about superannuation. I mean, that's... There's no discussion about politicians super... You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there that makes that a very neat little humidity crib that sits in, whether it's state or federal politics, that people get into and they stay in. And I think that's those same rules that we're expecting of other parts of our community and society, we should start collectively to be expecting of our political uh, operations and our political systems as well. Mm. Um, before I move to Ben, um, to kind of not so much have the final word, but uh, 
I want to ask both you, Anne and Tony, you've both talked about the need to, for the electorate to think long-term. What practical mechanism are we talking about here to make that happen? It's, it's easy to say we want the electorate to think long-term. How, how do you make that happen? And, and I'm really thinking practically. And I'm also thinking practically when you said, when you read out of that, and this is one of my personal interests, and whenever I say it, everybody kind of thinks of all the reasons why not. But I think that major parties should have term limits. I think they should say, particularly in the upper house, if you're a senator, you can only really do that job. <coughs> there is very, very few senators who can do that job very well for 25 years. Mm. We, live in a, we, live in a, uh, we live in a system where most people don't have a job for life. They retrain, they change. Why that should be any different for politicians, I have no idea. We have a system that rewards people who have no life before politics and do not think about life after politics mm. much, except for being a lobbyist. So how do we renew the system... Now, there'd be problems with term limits, but I was interested in both of you to think about a very practical mechanism that may be something that the parties instigate or could be instigated by law to, to refresh politics in some way. Um, the how... Sorry, I'll start. Yes. The, uh, in terms of the how, uh, I think there's... I mean, we... Tony used the example of the Berlin Wall and other things. There are quite powerful mechanisms now to get social campaigns up and running. Uh, and I think maybe we just need a bit more focus on this is a piece of our... This is a really important piece of our collective lives. We hand over responsibility, largely, for the term of government and expect people to do things that they're... Collectively, all the research is saying we don't think they're doing well. They're not thinking long-term. There's not enough planning. It's too short-term. It's too knee-jerk. Maybe some of the polling, actually, shouldn't be about issues. It should be about does anyone think this is working? You know, does it, would anyone actually vote for us if they really had choice? If there well, wasn't there should compulsory... be less polling, or we should pay <laughs> well, less attention less polling, to it. Maybe, yeah, that's right. And says so, the market researcher, but I believe so it. I actually don't have a really clear answer to that. But I think where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, if we decided that the, it was a, the time to really start asking, is our politics, current political system, serving us well? Uh, the answer might not be as positive as people would expect. To your point about short terms, yeah. I mean, I think in lots of other parts of... Um, and, I mean, I use the corporate life as an example, but it's not the only place it happens. There are limits on how long people can do things, and for good reason. To imagine you're a sharp... You know, there might be a few people who are as sharp 25 years into a job... <laughs> so I'm pointing at Everett. Um, <laughs> 25 years into a job as others. But in general, you lose touch... You do lose touch and you want it churning through. You want more people. The world changes. You want people with new perspectives to come in, not to have them locked out. And I think it's the locking out of really good talent of the diversity of our community. It's the most... It's almost now the most unrepresentative body in Australia when you look at the, the make-up of it, uh, both in terms of age, demographic, ethnicity, etc. And, and it has impacts on policy. I mean, one of the things that's very clear is that is the federal yeah. parliament's like, oh, should we have gay marriage? And the rest of the community is like, we already have it. Like, it's get like, over it and just make it happen. It. Who cares? Yeah. And why are you Move. still talking about it? Yes, like, exactly. Talk about something that, yeah. re you know, that actually... There's a lot of really hard things we need to talk about. Yeah. It's almost like bread and circuses. Yes. Tony? <laughs> there is a way through this. One of the things that... Most people that I talk to in the community, they're sick of the division, and this gay marriage thing is, is one of them. Uh, 
But with these two management teams that we have now, they have to create the divisions. Go out on, you know, on something like on broadband, for instance, the, the significance it could have in terms of infrastructure. To make it a divisive yeah, issue is almost criminal. And even worse than that is to convert the climate change debate mm. into a partisan political backyard toy it is criminal. Uh, one of the things that I participated in, in when I was in state parliament was called the country summit process. I, I was the convener of it. What we actually attempted to do there, and quite successfully, was bring a whole range of country groups, country this, country that, anything that do with the country, together in one room. They'd never been in one room before, so the political process could just pick them off by saying, oh yes, but we've got to represent what all people, you know, not only your group, but other people in the country. What we looked for in that process was what were the things that united you? If one person in that room, we had 186 different groups, if one person stood up and said, I don't agree with that particular motion, there was no debate, we just moved on. Our politics is about the opposite. It is about the 7% that divides us. Mm. Why don't we clean up the 93% first and then deal with these harder issues? Mm. But the thing that you find that comes through when those people meet next time, the Green isn't frightened of the farmer and vice versa. The, the unionist is not frightened of people that he, he normally confronting in an adversarial sense in the media. And they actually start to talk about other issues outside the norm. And that was a very successful process. And in fact, back in those days, in the 90s, our group actually got access to the cabinet on regular meetings to bring these country issues forward. Ben, I've taken a while to get to you, but I'm going to give fine. you a bit of latitude. Um, I mean, I don't know the extent to which you've ever been engaged in kind of traditional party politics, I guess, probably not a lot, but I am really interested in your, in your perspective on it and what you think is missing. Okay. Well, Anne mentioned ethnic diversity and here I am. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> no, look... It's the you... only time you've ever been. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it the only time it's ever happened to you? But the other, the other thing that Anne mentioned was that we do have this care factor problem uh, within politics. And if it wasn't compulsory voting, I do wonder how many people would actually line up at the ballot box um, come election day. Uh, growing up, my family was actually part of that problem. Uh, I didn't come from an especially politically minded family. Both of my parents are first generation Chinese migrants from Hong Kong. And before they reached Australia, they hadn't even cast a vote before in their life. And upon discovering that voting was actually compulsory in this new country of theirs, my mother's initial voting strategy involved supporting candidates she found most handsome, uh, <laughs> or failing the presence of a handsome candidate, the least obviously hideous one. Um, my father, on the other hand, would vote for the person he thought sounded, quote, least like an idiot. Uh, this often made it very difficult for him at the voting booth. <laughs> I would hazard a guess that it might still be the case. Uh, because really when it comes to identifying what's wrong with Australian politics, because we agreed before that the scope of that subject is so huge, where do we even start? And it's worth clarifying, I really like stats, so I've got a lot of stats with me. Uh, it's worth clarifying that voters actually do feel like something is wrong. At last count, fewer than half of voting Australians under the age of 30 even believe democracy was preferable to any other kind of government, less mm -hmm. than half. 
In 2009, nearly half of polled Australians said Canberra could be trusted almost always or most of the time. That's pretty good. Then four years later, only a quarter of us said the same thing. That's a really fast and steep plummet in trust. And you've got to keep in mind that this survey actually came out before the 2014 budget. <laughs> so also keep in mind that in the last two elections, no party has actually really won with overwhelming affection or resounding majorities. So many voters feel really stuck in their options and they vote for the party that they consider to be uh, less evil rather than the greater good. But for the sake of brevity, uh, I want to focus on one problem uh, that I think is sort of a, almost a pet issue of mine, and Anne's actually touched on it already. I wouldn't be surprised if many of you share it. Um, my problem with Australian politics is almost hilariously hidden in plain sight. And when people complain that politics in Canberra is same old, same old, or that nothing changes, um, there's an obvious key factor. We ask, what's wrong with Australian politics? And it's for me, when you look at parliamentarians, you don't actually see Australia pretty diverse country when it comes to gender, race, geography, culture, disability, sexuality, experience. You know, of course I'd say this. Um, but don't you think that a lack of diversity is a problem in politics when we're supposed to have a representative democracy? Now, in fairness, this lack of diversity isn't a problem exclusive to politics, which is Tony's realm, was Tony's realm. Many see it uh, as a problem in business, Anne's realm, and it's definitely a problem in the arts and in the media, the industries in which I work. But the fact it's a glaring problem in our parliament, engine of democracy, limbs of uh, civic life, has bothered me since I was able to vote. Now, before we move on, I want to do a snap poll because I like audience interaction as well. Um, put up your hand. How many of you in the audience today speak a language other than English at home? Thank you very much. Um, quite a few of you, um, minority of people, but in Australia, roughly one in five Australians speak a non-English language at home, the most common ones being Mandarin, Italian, Arabic, Cantonese and Greek. So it's roughly 20%. By comparison, the last uh, survey, and it was a while ago, but the last survey of 150 lower house MPs showed that just over 5.3% came from a diverse language background. So that's 5.3 versus 20. Okay, next question. How many of you were born overseas? Okay, a lot more hands. It's probably like, I don't know, a quarter. I'll venture a guess because that's what the statistics say. Um, <laughs> Over 25% of Australians were born overseas, uh, a quarter of whom were born in Asia. And you compare that to 12.4% of Australian parliamentary members, only one of whom, Penny Wong, uh, was born in Asia, in an Asian country herself. And, as, and further to that, as Race Discrimination um, Commissioner Tim Supomazan has pointed out, of the 17 heads of federal government departments, there is only one of Asian cultural origin. Final question. How many of you are women? Yeah, that, that's quite a lot of you. <laughs> Weird. Um, Why aren't you at home? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> now, that's over 50% of the audience, and over 50% of Australians are women, yet in Australian Parliament, women make up less than a third of all parliamentarians and a fifth of all ministers. <laughs> now, that's, there's actually some good news and some bad news with those figures. The good news is that the UN actually regards 30% as minimal level of female representation to affect any 
significant influence in a country's legislative body. Happily, Australia actually reached that exact target for the first time in the last federal election across the lower and the upper house MPs, 30% first time. However, the bad news is that in our lower house, Australian parliament ranks 42nd globally in female representation. That's actually higher than the US or the UK, so poo to them. But we're behind a range of other countries, uh, France, Sweden, and quite interestingly, countries like uh, South Sudan and Afghanistan. So we could do this compare and contrast exercise for the rest of the day, I won't do it. Um, but for instance, there's only three federal MPs who are openly gay. There is currently only one Indigenous MP in the House of Reps, Ken Wyatt, and another in the Senate, Nova Paris. If representation reflected Australian population, there would be at least two extra Indigenous MPs in the lower house. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I don't actually think that Parliament actually has to reflect exactly the rest of the population. I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't actually quite mind the fact that the median age of MPs is 51. The majority of Australians are around the age of 30. And I don't mind that the majority of MPs have higher education because I want these people to be smart. Um, but overwhelmingly, our reps are 50-something heterosexual Caucasian men. Don't have anything against them personally. Uh, some of them are my best friends. Um, <laughs> but it saddens me that while our country is quite thrillingly diverse, we don't exploit that richness. And I think it's about changing that conversation about quotas, fulfilling obligations and actually exploiting this range of voices that we have on hand. Why we know that, you know, mongrel dogs are amongst the healthiest dogs, why can't we be a mongrel parliament as well? Now, the, the other question in all of this, like we just take for granted this idea that diversity is a good thing, but why is lack of diversity in Australian parliament necessarily a problem? Um, my boyfriend actually asked me this the other night, and even though I initially thought he was just doing it because he's white, it did make me think. <laughs> For instance, um, the New South Wales seat of Watson has the biggest Chinese population in Australia, but we don't expect the member for Watson, Labor's Tony Burke, to be Chinese. Uh, from what I've heard, uh, the Chinese-Australian voters of Watson dig Tony Burke. No one needs to be their constituents in order to represent their interests, unless you're some fantastically multiracial hermaphrodite, and congratulations if you are, that's very impressive. Um, you can't possibly be everyone, you can only be yourself. <coughs> However, um, a lack of diversity means fewer Australians regard politics as a career option. Uh, like in the media or business, the arts, it means entire segments of our country are invisibilised and their potential to contribute is snuffed out. And it also doesn't make economic sense. Cordelia Fine uh, wrote in the monthly, to underutilise female skills in education, for instance, is to lose large members of experienced women from the talent pool. And that makes little business or economic sense. And this lack of diversity can just be embarrassing. You know, like when white men propose amendments to the Racial Discrimination Act by prosecuting the case that people have the right to be bigots. Now, I actually think there are legitimate reasons for proposing amendments to the RDA, but sulking over how white people can't say racist things is possibly the whitest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and plus, aren't our politics diminished when there are no 
Indigenous Australians who have ever been Minister for Indigenous Affairs. And how many of our... Yeah, totally take that. I'm not Indigenous myself, but I'll take the applause. Um, and how many of our federal politicians legislating asylum seeker policy actually come from refugee backgrounds themselves? How many debating same-sex marriage are in same-sex relationships? As Karen Struthers, a former Queensland State MP, noted, it is unrealistic to expect people to accept and take responsibility for decisions that they had little input into. But surely, in a meritocracy, jobs are awarded to the best people. Mm. <laughs> Do we live in a meritocracy? Sim Tim Supomasant has observed, the conditions of a truly level playing field are rarely ever met. And there are also these interesting prejudices and biases, and some are conscious and others are subliminal. There was this really interesting study in 2010 where ANU economists sent more than 4,000 fake job applications um, out there to entry-level jobs. And the applications contained exactly the same qualifications, but with names from different ethnic backgrounds. And in order to get as many interviews as an applicant with an Anglo-Saxon name, someone with a Chinese name needed to submit 68% more applications. If you had a Middle Eastern name, you needed to submit 64% more. 64 more. Those with an Italian name needed to put 12% more in applications. Which is to say, the danger of relying on a meritocracy is the assumption that one even exists. Cream will eventually rise to the top, the saying goes, but cream's white. Um, <laughs> and I'm lactose intolerant. Um, so, if we all agree that we want a more diverse parliament, what do we do about it? I'm not actually sure I have a big idea. I'm just raising the question. But where are the levers, what are the circuit breakers designed to introduce new blood and political leadership into the field, and are they working? And, and are we allergic to the idea of this? After all, we arguably have a mechanism to ensure the states are represented equally. It's called the Senate. And luckily, some mechanisms to promote diversity in politics already exist. Um, the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples is looking for ways to uh, get ex experienced Indigenous leaders to take on parliamentary roles. Labor aims to ensure that women are pre-selected in 40% of winnable seats for the upcoming election. We also have groups like Emily's List. For me, it's not surprising that there's a disconnect between politicians and the public when on this really fundamental level, the public doesn't actually see themselves reflected in the halls of Parliament House. And people don't see themselves reflected in politics, they have less reason to care. Which is to say, we need more pioneers to stoke the imagination of potential future leaders. Julie Gillard allowed young girls to imagine themselves as Prime Minister, Ken Wyatt, Nova Paris have allowed Indigenous kids to imagine themselves as MPs, and Wyatt Roy has given hope to every strawberry-picking embryo <laughs> in the country. None of this is about necessarily seeing people like me in politics. It's not about me. I don't need to vote for someone who looks like me, and on a dark night, the line between me and Penny Wong is very blurry anyway. <laughs> Speaking of Penny Wong, I have noticed that ever since she's come into Parliament, um, my parents have become far more engaged in political discussion. And instead, I think this discussion is about giving Australia a political class that looks more like us. Yeah, good idea. Um, 
that's a wonderful almost ending to the session. So we've got about 17 minutes. So I did want to get people to ask questions because, like I said, this has been an ongoing theme throughout the day. So I'll go first over to uh, uh, the microphone over there on number one. Uh, my name's Malcolm Green. We're obviously not short of ideas here today. Could our fundamental problem be simply that we have a combative, party-based political system that's passed its used-by date? <laughs> hmm. Would we get more community participation and a lot more good ideas brought to life if we put a lot more independence into our parliaments? Thank you. The question is, though, is that cause or effect? Yeah. Do you end up with a system where no one ever can govern? Because the way we're, we're currently going about it is you find independence or a lot... I mean, there's a plethora now of parties. If you voted in the New South Wales upper house, you look at it and you go, who are all these people <laughs> who've never been heard of or never will be seen again with about 200 parties that have obviously been registered for the sake of an election? I'm not sure that's actually making it work better, but it at least is giving an outlet. I mean, I was going to ask Tony this. Is the fact that Ricky Muir can enter Parliament on 0.2% a yeah. good thing or a bad thing for democracy? Because yeah, people will argue both sides. They'll say, this, is, this man is unrepresentative, mm. represents a tiny group, mm. he doesn't know how Parliament works. And other people say, well, how else is, and I hate the term, ordinary Australian, but how else is somebody who isn't part mm. of the political machine going to get a Guernsey? What do you think? Well, Ricky Muir is there because of the... Uh, system that the two major parties agreed to and they're out there now trying to rearrange that so that there's a, a, a higher uh, cut-off point. Our constitution doesn't mention the word party at all. In the House of Representatives it's about uh, 150 representatives of different areas coming together uh, to uh, debate the issues of importance. The point I was making in terms of the hung parliament, and I've been in two of them, the, is that Prior to the well, when the, after the 17 days was over, the media and many others were saying this will be a chaotic period of uh, government. Nothing will be done. It'll be political paralysis. In fact, when you look at that particular parliament, uh, the climate change debate. Well, some of that's been undone. The broadband arrangements. Some of that's been undone as well. Needs-based education the uh, National Disability Scheme, etc., the Royal Commission, the Murray-Darling. Six very significant mm. pieces of reform. Now, politics, irrespective of who the players are, is supposed to be about policy and how it uh, impacts uh, on people. Uh, so I would suggest that in many cases, strong government by definition, if you accept the definition that you have to have a great majority to have strong government, that is a nonsense. That is an absolute nonsense to, to achieve uh, strong government. People are deliberately voting differently in the Senate uh, because they don't trust either side in the lower house. And in my old seat of New England, for instance, everybody said, oh, this is a conservative seat. Uh, Windsor should have supported the Conservatives. In that 2010 election, 60% of the same voters didn't vote for the Conservatives in the Senate. And that's being reflected. 
uh, right across the uh, political spectrum. Ben, do you have a comment on independence and what do you think they add or detract from the political system? Well, I, I, I want to get... Going back to that question of how to consult the community more or how we get engaged, it reminds me of um, when, when I've been to mainland China and I talk to people my age and their thoughts on democracy, and a lot of them are quite scared of it because they're like, well you're asking a lot of stupid people to make decisions that are very important. And I sort of understood where they come from. So I sort of wrestle with this idea that on some issues, for instance, I would like the government to listen to the majority of the population when it comes to something like same-sex marriage or, or uh, climate change, for instance. But then on other issues, I mean, the last poll we had about asylum seekers is mm. that the majority of Australians want asylum seekers treated more harshly than they are now and I don't particularly want our politicians to listen or to follow that sort of sentiment uh, and transform it into policy. Um, and so, you know, I remember when Gillard was doing those community consultations when she first came into power and she had community consultations on climate change or she proposed them. I don't remember if they came through. She did make a proposal that was never followed through. It was never followed through. And I'm so glad because (laughs) what does Norm and Lorraine and Benjamin know about climate change? I mean, this isn't a sentimental issue. It's a scientific one. And I guess my feeling or my hunch is that I want politicians to listen to people but to also pay a lot of attention to scientifically proven, economically proven methods that do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. I mean, it it sounds really old-fashioned. I just want them to to do the research and follow through with it rather than basing their policy on ideology. But that's partly your point about policy, isn't it? Government's in the business of policy. And some policy should be informed by facts and some of it is driven by political sentiment. Uh, Up to number two, up in the... In the rafters over there. Uh, I'm Max Clayton. I just would like to see oh, what the. Sorry, sorry, Max. Um, is it okay, number two, if you, if Max asks a quick question? Sorry, yeah, Max, and then number two up there. Oh, I'm sorry to get out of turn. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering in the views of the panel. Um, the New South Wales Upper House has been mentioned, and I just wonder their views on whether we need upper houses in the states. The federal sphere, okay. But do we need the expense of these people? Is that a rhetorical question? So, maybe. <laughs> do oh, we maybe. need these people? Yes, I come from Queensland, where there is no upper house. It's a problem. Um, and, and, you know, at the two, two elections ago, where you saw Campbell Newman sweeping with such a resounding majority that there was, what, less than 10, like a single digit a Labor MPs left in state government. The fact that there was no upper house, Queensland relies on these sort of um, bodies made up of a certain number of... Uh, MPs to sort of, you know, wrestle over policy. But there weren't actually enough numbers from the opposing side to actually wrestle with those numbers as well. So there was no sort of arguably system of review as well. I'm new to New South Wales politics. I find it very interesting. I would like to hear more from people who know more about it. So you think that it is important because... Different things can happen at the lower house level, so we always need that review, even at fits. Well, whether level. it's an upper house or some sort of system of review yeah. that has sort of we are we haven't got we've got less than ten minutes, so I'd ask if Tony and Anne have something devastating to say about that to say something, and then we'll move to the next question. Upper um, houses and state in both states. I've lived in, grew up in Queensland, now live in New South Wales. Um, I'm not that wedded to upper houses, partly because I think we've probably got too many politicians <laughs> overall. <laughs> 
And I like the idea of fewer people making trawling over the same mm. issues again and again and again. I'd like fewer people doing a couple of bigger things. Mm. Well, I'd, I'd abolish state governments, but there was state parliament. But, <laughs> uh, but presumably that's not going to happen. Uh, I'd be supportive of uh, of an upper house in our system. Okay, number uh, up in the rafters, up two. Thank you, sir. Hi, I'm PJ. Um, yeah, on the subject of new fresh voices, I would have thought that taking, uh, removing any, the Senate is the only place that we can get new voices into our politics, just because of the nature of the first past the post in the lower house. Um, there's electoral reform around the corner, I'm sure, before the next election, which is probably the only thing that's going to get cross-bench support, which is, uh, you could be said, it could be said that the major parties, the only thing they agree on other than disliking each other is they dislike smaller parties even more. <laughs> so, um, if you, presuming that that goes through, there are going to be a lot less uh, parties on the ballot slip when we come to the next election. But outside of that, I can't see... If we don't introduce new parties, then how else do we get fresh new voices into Parliament? I mean, some people talk about uh, people's juries, getting some people who literally have no uh, political background at all and um, to actually be in the Senate. But otherwise, when we do look at who is elected, and if you... I mean, the statistic of when you've removed everyone who's uh, a member of a party or staffer or has been a lobbyist or is related to somebody who was in Parliament yeah. before, um, it is a frighteningly uh, close to a kind of a political aristocracy, whereas when you talk about the political class, that should be every person in the electorate. We, we are the political class, so... That's a good point. Just briefly, if all of you would address, you know, what do you think we can do in terms of the major parties, in terms of is it pre-selection, is it, uh, you know, what is it to try and get different kinds of people involved in the two major parties for the moment? I mean, Tony, you didn't sit very um, comfortably in a major party <laughs> for very long. Well, I, I was a card-carrying member of a party, but never, never won in politics, so... Uh, I don't know what it's like to be a party member in, the, in a parliament. But, uh, therein lies a real problem. I think you've hit the issue. Most of the whinging that is going on is about the way the two parties mm. are operating. Don't give them an excuse to make it worse. Mm. You know, we're talking about diversity, but we want to control the channels of diversity in terms of who gets into the, into the building. Mm. If, if I was to ask most of you who the Labor and Liberal senators are in Australia, other than Matthias Cormann and a few others, you probably wouldn't know who they are. And there's some very dangerous people on both sides. Mm. <coughs> so if there was a, if there was a weeding by, out... What if, do you mean by dangerous? <laughs> well, they shouldn't be there, in my view. <laughs> if I was weeding out some people, I'd be starting in the way in which some of these people have actually got in through the back door of their... Uh, party pre-selections. How you improve that, I'll leave up to those party people. I'd just recommend that mm. the voter has a good hard look at some of the people they're actually putting in there. Mm. So, and I mean, there's a lot yeah. of discussion, and for example, in the Labor Party about, you know, rank and file or community pre-selections for upper house seats. Do you think that a little bit of sunshine thrown into the party process yeah, would... look, I think that's, that's a step in the right direction. I mean, the reality is the pre-selection for politicians in the major parties should fundamentally change. It can't be done the way it's been traditionally done with, as I, you know, it's like 
a, a very small religious order decide who's going, you know, a puff of white smoke goes up and someone no one's ever heard of appears uh, <laughs> and you either learn to love them or you don't. I mean, that's, there's a bit of that goes on at the moment, which I think is not serving us well. But I also think that the challenge of so many independent parties popping without any real purpose or clarity of purpose. I mean, some of them have very clear purpose. You know, no land tax. I mean, what? Uh, you know, whatever that is. So I think there's a, there's a dynamic around that, which is as it pulls apart, we've got extremes on both sides. You've got the major parties with very closed systems, which fundamentally need to... In no other part of our society could you operate like that. You just couldn't. You can't hand Even people... Even the Catholic Church is changing under exactly. the light. If the Catholic you Church can change... You can't hand people privilege. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. We're handing them a lot of privilege as well as asking them to represent us. You can't do that. And on the other side, have, you know, 150 small parties with individuals pop up. Yeah, you want the diversity, and that might be how it comes in the short term. But, in fact, we've got to get both sides of that system working better. So we get good people representing us who are thinking about our future, not about their own or about whatever the micro issue is that bought them. And I agree. Most of the senators in Australia, people in this room would struggle to name more mm. than one or two of Australia's senators. And that's our House of Review. That's our other great mechanism to protect our democracy. Ben, just quickly, do you have anything to say? Oh, I, think, I think one of the problems is acknowledging that we have a political class in the first place. I think Australians really pride ourselves on being so egalitarian that this idea that we'd even admit that there's such a thing is, is the first uh, hurdle. But if you don't believe there is a political class, I like, I like to acknowledge that, um, you know, there have been more Victorian state premiers from the same school than there have been female state premiers in that state. Um, but, the other, but the other thing that uh, I would probably maybe float as a mechanism or maybe as a case study is looking at um, Queensland's first Indigenous female state MP, Leanne Enoch, and how she got to where she is, because that's, that's a first for the state. And um, that was to do with um, a lot of political mentorship, recognising talent, but also actively pursuing her as talent as well, um, and not being afraid of... I mean, people are afraid of tokenism, people are afraid mm. of ticking boxes, but it's not about that, it's about in inclusion. And that takes you to identify someone. Look, I, Actually, I, think, I think the election... Sorry if I'm sorry. The other lesson from Queensland is if you don't think you've got a chance of winning, you put up a whole lot of really good women <laughs> yeah. into election. Yeah. Right. And they and all win. Yeah. And then you fundamentally change no, the dynamic the election, of your politics overnight. Amazing. <laughs> the election... No, there's a political class. The only people who deny it are the political class who just say, yeah. it's just me and my mates. We're not yeah. the political mm, class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, just one question over here. It's our final one. OK. Um, both Anne and Tony started... They talk about uh, what's wrong with politics by going back to the electorate and looking at the grassroots. So I'm just inviting you to ponder my bewilderment about my electorate. Um, we lost our incumbent MP to ICAC, so uh, we had the opportunity to, to reinvent ourselves. We have been a liberal, Democrat, liberal electorate for something like 60 years. And we have a local issue where um, the RMS wants to replace an 1870s bridge, two-lane bridge, with a two-lane bridge that doesn't address the local traffic needs and uh, doesn't improve flood-free access. And it's such a community issue that the Occupy Thompson Square rally has been going almost for a 1,000 days, 24-7. 
So when it was raining last week, mm. they were in the tent. Mm. When it's minus four in June, they're in the tent. Been there for almost a thousand days. Such a huge local issue. We had to meet the candidates evening. The local Liberal person who'd been parachuted in from nowhere, um, I heard him being consoled by his minders at the end of the evening about a rough crowd, because he was in total opposition to what we were, what the community wanted. And I've, heard, I've been at historical societies that were rougher than what he endured. <laughs> I don't know what he thinks a rough crowd is. Anyway, long story short, come the election, his, uh, the independent that came along was articulate. In, um, in full of, she's been part of the, the, the Occupy movement for the, you know, does, had everything on top of the issues. Go to the election. This dude from nowhere <laughs> wins with 60% of the vote. Wow. And he's in to his policies and... and commitment was a complete opposition to what the community has said it has wanted and has been fighting for for a thousand days. Can somebody explain to me what the electorate's thinking? Well, I don't well. think... Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, very um, vivid picture painted and a very interesting question. Yeah, I don't think you can blame the candidate. Which one? <laughs> the, uh, well, obviously, the guy who was successful, that, that would suggest to me that the majority of people in that electorate either thought there were more significant issues than the, than the bridge uh, or that uh, they live under a mushroom. <laughs> oh, right. You're closer to it than I am. I mean, I, I guess I don't know enough about the specifics, but it, it does suggest that there's a whole lot of other people who might say they're supportive and who aren't, and who, when it comes to the crunch vote, uh, vote differently. Electorates often also are quite big. So what's a really burning issue in one piece of electorate, actually nobody else in the rest of the electorate mm. does care about, and I think that's, that probably happens in quite a lot of electorates. I mean, there's probably a flip side to that example in some of the city electorates where, you know, local candidates who thought they were absolutely on top of all the local issues, in fact, got voted out by, um, by smaller parties as well. So I think it flips, it happens in reverse as well, uh, where people weren't as aware of, you know, bigger community concerns. But I think, in some ways, that's, they're good stories even though it doesn't feel good to you. <laughs> you didn't get the candidate you wanted. But, I mean, in some ways they're good stories because at least there's some engagement. I think the worst electorates are electorates where there's no engagement. Mm. The same people get elected again, again and again because they take for granted what an electorate thinks or wants mm. or the makeup of an electorate, and there is no engagement. Mm. And that's the worst form of politics, where the same person or people or party, you know, goes on ad nauseum without even knowing that there's a group of people camped in a tent about a bridge. I wouldn't be discouraged, yeah. though, because I don't think... Very rarely is there a massive knockout blow in politics. Yes. If yeah. this man who was ignoring the electorate continues to do that, he'll become Sophie Mirabella, <laughs> who you must miss. <laughs> Tony, you must miss her. Must be a very nasty person. <laughs> anyway, we're going to end now. Before... Yeah. Um, I want it before we, we're going to thank our guests and before and then <laughs> Anne Mossop is going to round everything up. But please thank our guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.